Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Wednesday, May 15th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Home Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Ryan Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Huai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, it's been a week since we've gotten together and talked about what we've been doing. I will start things off. Last week on the podcast, I mentioned how I went to the AMA Awards, basically the Oscars for Magic, and that afterwards at the Magic Castle, I got to see some great magic performances. I got to see someone performing as Orson Welles and someone performing as Di Vernon. Uh, after that, I had I was at the Magic Castle this week, and one of those performers came up to me and said they listened to the podcast, which was really cool. But uh, he actually said in a way that was like, you kind of mentioned me on the podcast. And I walked away from that conversation realizing that I kind of screwed up. Um, you know, I on this podcast, I don't want to talk too much about magic. I know people listening are not here to listen about magic. Um, they're here for movies and TV and that kind of stuff. So I always try to kind of rush through that stuff. And in that process, I feel like I, you know, I guess it's kind of like if I went and saw Hamilton and I, and I was like, oh, yeah, I saw this actor perform as Hamilton. He was good. Like that that actor, that artist, that magician should be named. And I should have mentioned the, the guys that performed that night um, because I really enjoyed them. Uh, the guy that played Orson Welles is this magician named Hannibal, who I think is one of my favorite magicians who regularly performs at the Magic Castle. He is just so good. Um, I'm actually a Patreon of his uh, Patreon page and listen to his podcast as well. And he he's just a, a great magician. If you ever have the chance to see Hannibal perform, go see him. And the guy that played Di Vernon is the great Dallas magician, um, Jared Kofe, who uh, isn't in town as often, um, but he's one of my favorite magicians of all time. So I feel like w- whenever I talk about any artist or any of us talk about any artist on the show, we should be naming them. We we do that with composers. We do that with actors. We do that with cinematographers. And I probably should be doing that with magicians. So there you go. 
And this week I did get to see a new magic show. This one is playing at the Geffen. It's Helder Gamirez. Um, he has a new magic show called Invisible Tango. Before we get into this, I got to give you some background here. Now, first of all, Helder was the was part of a duo act. He and this other guy named Derek Delgadio were these two great magicians. They kind of grew out of the Magic Castle system, and they performed this show at the Geffen years ago called um, Nothing to Hide. And it was this great show. It's directed by Neil Patrick Harris, and it uh, was a wonderful show. And it's it, these uh, that show I think was the first of the modern era of like pushing magic beyond what it's being see- what it's traditionally being seen as by the general public to a place of art where it's actually saying something about greater and means something and and has an actual emotional impact on the people watching it. Now. Uh, like happens in, in 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 any world of art, uh, these two guys had this huge split that uh, is you know legend in the magic world and the general general world. Probably most people don't know about it, but these two guys went their separate way. And uh, Derek went on to do this show called In and of Itself, which was in L.A. and then in New York. No, it's extended, extended, extended again. And the show is incredible. The show is. Uh, a work of art. It was one of those magic shows that, you know, you know, transcended the arts section of a newspaper and was talked about, you know, celebrities, everybody was going to see the show. Um, and the reason why the show I think did so well is because it wasn't just a magic show. It was a, a bit of storytelling and uh, an emotional performance from Derek first and foremost, and then secondary, um, it was a magic show. It had some magic in it, um, but it spoke to deeper meaning and different, uh, deeper uh, emotions. It, it, it um, was a wonderful piece, and I wish, I wish everybody here could have seen this show because it was incredible. I, I was lucky enough to see it twice. Uh, Helder's show um, is directed by Frank Marshall, who you know, alongside his wife Kathleen Kennedy, directed a lot of the films that we grew up. Anybody from the eighties and nineties grew up on, um, and it is composed it features original music from Moby and it's also at the Geffen where Derek had in and of itself uh if I have I, well first off let me say that the magic in the show is incredible the magic is 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 very good it's all card stuff so if you, if you don't want to see an hour and a half of card magic this might not be your thing but Helder is just a master at manipulation and slights and it, it's very good um I saw it on the second night, so I'm not sure it's fair to judge the show by a second night performance. That's when, you know, he's just getting in the groove of things. But I do feel like the show feels like a reaction. It feels reactionary to what Derek is doing. Um, It feels like Helder is trying to emulate what Derek did with in and of itself. It doesn't feel like he's doing his own thing. It doesn't feel like he's being true to himself. Um it feels like he's reading scripted lines. Um, there, there was a point in the evening where, it, like, it felt more interactive and it felt more like he was in uh, the comfort of himself. And um, the, the show, the magic in the show, is very good. I don't want to discount that, but I, I just feel like this is not, this is not what Helder is like. I feel like Helder is trying to be someone he who he's not. Um, but I would still recommend this. 
I still recommend you go see this. If you are in the L.A. area, check out the Geffen website and check out uh, Invisible Tango. Uh, but I don't think it's quite the home run that in and of itself was with uh, Derek Delgadio. But um, Helder is a great magician. You should go see him. Okay, what else have I been up to? I um, I finally received I, – I, I ordered the life-size Infinity Gauntlet from Sideshow Collectibles and Hot Toys. I received that in the mail. I did an unboxing video, which you can find on uh, my vlogging YouTube channel, Ordinary Adventures. I'll link it in the show notes. And uh, this thing is huge. It's massive. Um, I had hesitated for a long time about if I should – buy this. I saw it at Comic-Con and it was something I really wanted. Uh, when it was announced, I, I, I was curious about it because, but like, you know, who knows? Maybe I wouldn't like uh, Infinity War. Maybe I wouldn't like Endgame. But, uh, you know, starting Slash Film in 2005 at this point, I think. <laughs> yeah, 14 years ago. Uh, Slash Film has kind of gone alongside the growth of the MCU. Uh, you know, my first time at Comic-Con was seeing Iron Man and John Favreau up on stage. And the MCU has been a huge part of my life and Slash Film. And uh, I don't know, having this Infinity Gauntlet on my shelf is more than just a small collectible, you know, having a statue on a shelf, it, it means more to me. So anyways, uh, ch- check out the unboxing video I did. Uh, I think it's uh, short and funny. Um, the other thing I've been doing, uh, and I'm talking at length here because I don't have much to talk for the rest of the podcast, so I apologize for going over, but um, I've been learning a lot about how YouTube works because I'm uh, starting this YouTube channel and uh, it's a whole new world whole new way of thing go, things work. For instance, um, I know we always like to complain about how movie trailers have that like f- like that five or ten second preview of like the coolest moment from the movie trailer at the start of the trailer on YouTube or Instagram. I finally understand why why they do that. Um, you when when you have a YouTube channel, you have access to actually some analytics where you can actually see where people are tuning out on your videos or where people are like fast forwarding to like you actually can watch your video and see a graph of like the the exact second that people turn off the video. And uh, it's amazing on most almost consistently uh, how much people press play on a video and in the first five seconds, turn it off like that, that, that is a thing. And I, I think basically well, I don't think I know that those previews on those trailers are are basically to try to capture someone's attention and to prevent them from from that huge drop off in that first five seconds of the video. Um, and it's it also occurs to me while doing this how how Netflix must have like all of this for every single show they have. They must have like an abundance of this kind of data. Like I would love to see like exactly when like people turn off an episode of Black Mirror. Or do, you, do you know what I mean? Like I feel like that data is so interesting and probably important to what they're greenlighting. And um, yeah. Anyways, so I'm I'm down deep in this YouTube hole. Uh, I've learned uh, if you want people to watch your videos, you need to have a circle with a red circle with an ar- red arrow to it in the background. Um, not doing that, but um. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Peter, does this mean that you're going to start cutting together like 
five second sizzle reels of your videos and putting those at the start of all of your vlogs. Well, you mentioned you joke about that, uh, Ben. But in the first, if you watch the Infinity uh, Gauntlet unboxing video, I put a clip from that that is I feel like an exciting clip of us actually opening it and like the first reveal of it and like I feel like actually if you look at the analytics, it helped. It actually helped people from that that first ten second drop that I've seen with all the videos, um, and a lot of the YouTubers I follow actually do that. They'll they'll basically cut out like the first five or ten second, like the the first five or ten seconds will be like the most exciting point of their video or a funny point, and they'll put it there as like a teaser for the episode. And um, apparently, it works. And if you want to know why people. You know, reminding you to subscribe and hit the bell and to, you know, smash that like button, uh, you know, at the beginning and end of every YouTube video you watch. It's because it sadly works. Like, like uh, if you look at these statistics, it's 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 amazing. Like, you would think, like, people would have a mind of their own of, like, you know, if I like a video and I like a person I'm watching that maybe I'll, you know, want to subscribe to them. But maybe, like, they just need that reminder. But, um... I don't know. It's we, kind of we, we start to manufacture exciting things like in the beginning. Of the movie, <laughs> like, oh my god, knives are falling from the ceiling. Yeah, I'll just make up shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe, that, but that, then I think you get the dislikes, and then that hurts your video. Oh no, Pixel found a gun. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what? It's also interesting. Is I guess YouTube used to count on. The, the the analytics and the the way YouTube videos would be recommended to you a user w- was purely based on like view counts and likes, and now it's more based on watch time. So just because someone clicked on something and went to watch it because of you know some kind of like clickbaity uh, title, um, now that doesn't matter anymore. Now it's actually how long they actually watch the video. Like there's a it's all about audience retention. And um, the goal that they say that you want to hit is 50%. So you want the average retention of someone watching your video to be – they make it to the halfway mark, which is kind of sad to me. But uh, anyways, um, learning all the stuff, it's fun. Uh, it, ben, I know you've put some of your videos on YouTube. I know that's more of like you know personal vacation uh, montage vlog kind of stuff, but have you ever looked into the analytics and, and dived into like, are people watching it to the end? I have never looked at that stuff, and uh, you know, be- <laughs> because like you said, it, it's all personal. But just hearing you talk about it and like hearing all of the, uh, you know, how data driven everything is, you know, coming <laughs> coming from a world where we value things like character and story and all of that, it just is so depressing <laughs> to me. Like the notion of of like conforming your your content for lack of a better word to fit in with the algorithms of youtube like it's just so soul-sucking but well, um, i don't think you need to look at that and conform but i think it does tell you something like like maybe right, right. what I people mean, are like what kind of music people like in your videos more than i don't know maybe i guess then that is 
persuading you to use that kind of music in future videos, right? Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, I'm, I don't plan on changing any of the way that I do anything because I don't have any vested interest in like making money off of YouTube stuff, uh, which is why I use like songs that I don't have the rights for. And you know, I just let those bands put ads on whatever videos I put up. But for anybody out there who actually is trying to like make a go at making a living on youtube or or even just like getting paid as a side hustle it's uh yeah man it's depressing hearing stuff like that i gotta tell you <laughs> and, and also I, I know i mentioned the thumbnails of the images like what do you do for your thumbnails do you just pick like the best like thumbnail from the video um yeah i i pick something that i just think is a decent representation of what you're gonna see maybe if we did like a cool looking time lapse or something like that i'll grab a still from that yeah no it's amazing how People like their statistics of how like you need to take a photo, like a good photo, put it in there, put some text on the photo. Ben, you, you, you're you missing out on all these clicks. No, I don't know. Um, anyways, OK, that that's what I've been doing this week. Uh, Jacob, what have you been up to? Uh, not much. I'm upgrading my home gym because it turns out that when you go and buy a $60 weight bench, it doesn't last very long when you use it several times a week. So I, I, my wife and I went out. We bought one that's a couple hundred dollars, so, you know, next step up as part of my trying to stay in shape and get in shape uh, progress this year. And so here's my question for the group and for anyone who's listening and wants to chime in uh, on Twitter or email or whatever. I'm looking for your best and most recommended music for working out uh, recommendations. I'm not picky. Right now, my workout playlist, the most uh, listened to songs are by Bruce Springsteen and Carly Rae Jepsen to give you an idea of my musical taste range. So I am looking for not necessarily your favorite songs or your favorite bands, but I'm looking for uh, artists or songs that work incredibly well for the exercise mentality and exercise mindset. Ben, you're a fit guy. What should I be listening to? Uh, Jacob, I'm sad to say that I am an insane person who just listens to podcasts when I go like for a run and, and do any sort of workouts. And my wife is always just flabbergasted that I'm able to do this because she listens to, you know, Rihanna and like things that actually have a beat when she's working out. Uh, and she just sort of looks at me and shakes her head when she realizes that I'm just listening to people talking. And most of the time, to make matters even worse, I'm listening to it at like one and a half speed or like two times speed or something when I'm uh, Wait, wait a second. Out. You're listening to podcasts at one and a half or two times speed? Yeah, that's probably a topic for a whole nother podcast. I don't know if we want to get into that right now, but um, but yeah, okay. I'm, I'm the worst person to ask this question, Jacob. So because I just listen, I have so many podcasts that I listen to, and that time is valuable to me as like a, a good time to sort of um, you know, sort of cross stuff off the list and and go through and enjoy hearing discussions from people that I like. Uh, and I'm able to do it in a way where it doesn't because for me, like the the long form nature of a lot of the conversations that are happening in these podcasts sort of um, tricks my brain into thinking that I'm not working out for as long as I am because I have this thing where like, you know, if I if I listen to five or six songs in a row, I'm like, okay, each of these songs are three or four minutes or whatever, and I'm like doing the math in my head, like, it makes me feel more tired, I think, by the by the end of it. I'm like, oh, God, this is the sixth song that I've been listening to in a row while I'm working out. I really need a break. But for 
free-flowing conversations. It just helps me. I don't know. I'm a crazy person. So next no, person, anybody you're, else? You're not that crazy. I'll tell you why. Because when I um, recently I started adding walking and jogging into my repertoire every other day, I do uh, weight training in the garage with cardio. And every other day, I do a two-mile lap around my neighborhood. And on the when I'm outside the house, I, I have to do podcasts. I can't do music when I'm actually outside i can only do music when i'm in the garage so take from that what you will i'm, I'm <laughs> also a podcast person it, it, have you listened to podcast the ride yet i know i recommended that a couple yeah i I'm a, I'm a big big fan of podcast the ride it's, i was actually listening to the disneyland railroad episode last <laughs> night while i was jogging so yeah it's so so much fun uh anybody else here have music recommendations for jacob I mean, back when I was more responsible about going to the gym and not eating terrible things, um, I I found that like some of the stuff like like Skrillex stuff and like there's a, um, uh, Nero. They, it's like this. It's fast paced. Like uh, not. It's not all like house techno music, but like Nero especially, they kind of uses like epic score uh, samplings like with with techno sounds. And I also like to listen to like the more fast paced tracks from soundtracks like star Wars or uh, Mad Max Fury road and stuff like that. It helps me kind of like stay energized and like the beat helps, you know, kind of keep, if you're doing cardio, especially like keep you going at a certain pace. You know, I heard that Chris once had a band. Why don't you download his, his CD and listen to that while you work out? Yes. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have uh, recommendations for me, uh, ping me on Twitter at the Jacob S. Hall. Use the hashtag music for Jacob to listen to in his garage. I'm surprised HT isn't piping up with any uh, K-pop recommendations here. Well, I, I don't know if K-pop is exactly like Jacob's um, <laughs> preference, but I will say K-pop is great workout music and or just uh, um inspirational music in general just because the beat is always really fast paced and you don't understand any of what they're saying except for like the english choruses so i find it good not just i don't work out that much because i don't really like working out surprise but um it's good for like energizing you so uh if, if you uh want some k-pop recommendations i can give you some i have I might have a playlist <laughs> that would be very useful uh because i i actually do enjoy uh k-pop and j-pop and the right circumstances so send it my yeah. way anime music <laughs> hc what have you been up to this week um so i appeared recently on a slash film cast bonus ep episode to talk about the avengers endgame women moment which isn't um based off the article i wrote for slashfilm.com i don't usually um uh talk about my like some random forays into slash film cast, often because I forget. But uh, I really like this discussion we had. It was with Ingu Kang from uh, Slate. And uh, it was a really great, um, I think, 45-minute discussion about representation and about just responsibility that uh, sub a big company that like Marvel has for this kind of thing. So I really enjoyed that. And I hope you guys can check it out if you're not sick of Avengers Endgame stuff. Um, and also this weekend, I, it was my cousin's wedding. So my whole family, uh, descended into New York for the weekend. And, um, on the first day, my mom and my parent, my parents, my sister and I went to the Frida Kahlo appearances can be deceiving exhibit at the Brooklyn museum. And, um, it's, uh, not actually a Frida Kahlo exhibit. It's about her, her life and, um, her own and her life as 
through the lens of other people, essentially. There's a lot of photographs of her, and there's a lot of her fashion, her iconic fashion and um, outfits on display. Uh, and that was really fascinating to see. It kind of reminded me of the um, J.R. Token exhibit I went to at the Morgan uh, Library a couple weeks ago. It was kind of about their life story rather than about their works in general. But it did, it was inter interesting to see how their lives uh, in, impacted and influenced their own works. But um, Frida Kahlo, uh, as you know, is a, as you may know, is a Mexican um, artist. And uh, it was interesting to see um, how she, for example, wasn't quite that famous when she was um, living. She only, her works only kind of uh, gained fame after her death. And um, she, it was more her, her husband, actually, who was uh, more famous. He was a muralist, uh, Diego Rivera. And um, she went through quite a lot of struggles as a, throughout her life. She had um, a crippling um, accident when she was a teenager. And before that, she had polio. So she struggled with just constant pain, as well as um, I think she had her leg amputated as well. So uh, a lot of her outfits, which have become so synonymous with her and they're like the traditional outfits of Mexican culture, uh, were actually, she started wearing them to sort of hide her disability. And that was really fascinating to me. Um, so it was a, it was a great exhibit. Um, it's at the Brooklyn Museum and uh, it's private, so I couldn't take any photos, but I highly recommend going if you are at all interested in Frida Kahlo or you don't really know anything about her and uh, want to learn more. Um, and another thing I did is I finally met Chris, this Chris Evangelista sitting across from the digital table as we are now. And uh, <laughs> it was very exciting. We went to see uh, John Wick 3 together and we hung out and talked and took a picture and um, potentially planned a sharp podcast, a sharp objects podcast. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll let Chris talk about it too, because I'm sure he was as excited as I was to meet him. Or maybe he wasn't, I don't know. No, I was. It was very nice. Uh, HT is exactly, in person, is exactly as she is on this podcast. And you know, some people are like one way uh, when they're like on, you know, in public like this and they're another way in private. She is exactly as uh, cheerful and upbeat in person as she is on this show. It's it's not an act, folks, I, I swear. So uh, <laughs> it was it was very nice to meet her. It was very nice, you know, in New York City, uh yeah, and we saw John Wick, and it was great. It was it was a nice uh, evening, nice afternoon slash evening. Yeah, and Chris is also the same as he is in, on podcast as well. <laughs> yes, HT said in her Slack channel that her superpower is that she is much smaller than she looks like in pictures. So is, is that the case, Chris? She, you know, she really did not seem that short to me. I, uh, I, I, she's uh, maybe it's because my wife is uh, about her height, so I'm maybe I'm sort of used to it. But I, I didn't, I did not find HG to be overly freakishly small. She looks, she looks fine to me. Okay, cool. Let's, uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. Ben, what have you been reading this week? So I recently finished William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade. This is a book that I bought right after uh, Goldman passed away, and uh, which was like relatively recently. And it's a book that I've been wanting to read for a long time, just never got around to it. And his death, unfortunately, finally sort of spurred me on to read this. And this is a book that, I, you know, for a lot of people in Hollywood, as was evidenced by the outpouring of love and support that that came out right after he died, this was a book 
for a lot of people that served as like a Bible. It was like their way into the industry. And it's because of the way that Goldman, who was a famous screenwriter who wrote movies like um, The Princess Bride and uh, I mean, all, all sorts of like tons of things, Butch Casting the Sundance Kid, um, Marathon Man, uh, All the President's Men. I mean, he's like an Oscar winning guy. Um, he the way that he wrote about the industry back then was like a window for regular people, basically. And it was it was uh, this book is like the the er text, I guess, for a lot of people where it was the way that he sort of humanized the industry. It, it, a lot of times um you look at Hollywood as like this uh, untouchable place, but Goldman who, you know, wasn't like born and raised in Los Angeles provided a pathway for people who had dreams of working in entertainment to achieve those dreams. And he, he talked a lot about his experience. It wasn't necessarily, the entire book is not necessarily like a how to guide. Although one of the sections is very, very helpful. One of the sections of this book is very helpful in terms of like actually how to, um, adapt a screenplay based on previous material. He's also a novelist, so he included one of his short stories and then wrote a script based on that and then had, this is a really cool part of the book, had a bunch of different um, people who work in the industry, including like cinematographers and directors and stuff like that, break down his script from their perspective and their uh, trade perspective and sort of talk about the pluses and minuses and how they would approach the material. So, for, you know, on a practical level, the book is actually really useful for aspiring writers, even still. But there's also a lot of stories about all of the different movies that he made and uh, the the experiences that he had in the industry. And it's it's a really really great read, um, especially for anybody who loves movies and all that stuff. There there's a lot of cool stories in there. And he uh, even though this book came out in 1983 and he wrote it in '82, um, so some of the uh, some of the observations and stuff are sort of laughably outdated because of the way the industry has changed so seismically since then. A surprising amount of it is still shockingly relevant now. Um, so anyway, yeah. Uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade is what it's called. William Goldman is the author. And I would highly recommend checking it out. I remember reading this in like the late 90s when I wanted to become a screenwriter. And there's just like so many like, I want to say horror stories, but like finding out how Hollywood actually works is kind of scary. I guess nowadays everybody kind of assumes a lot of the stuff that he writes about here. Like, it, like back then, I feel like this was more of an expose of what was going on behind the scenes and mm-hmm. and that kind of sort. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I highly recommend this. And he actually has a sequel to this that I don't think as many people read. I think it's like more adventures in the screen trade or something. Yeah, like that. it's called it's called Which Lie Did I Tell? More adventures in the screen trade. Yeah, it's not as good. But uh, if you like this one, check it out. Chris, what have you been reading this week? Uh, I started reading um, a book called Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What We Can Do to Fix It by uh, Mike Montiero. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, fellow podcasters and also listeners at home, but the world is terrible right now. It's a big awful nightmarish garbage fire and some of that is due to you know things beyond our control but some of it has a lot to do with uh the way things have been designed specifically social media and you know uh, you know facebook and all uh, you know online culture basically and this book argues 
that's you know that's happening because <laughs> that's the way this stuff has been designed like this you know facebook and instagram and all this stuff it's operating exactly as it's supposed to operate and no one thought ahead to how it could be used to you know destroy the world basically and and uh, i haven't gotten to the uh, how we could fix it part yet i'm still on the <laughs> how designers ruin the world part and it's it's a very um alarming book um it's written in a very you know uh, self-deprecating amusing style like it's not like a dry book it's it's a funny book but it's also horrifying because you know it's just all this stuff about you know how terrible things have gotten for a reason and how uh, you know there's no code of ethics for designers they don't have to they don't have a hippocratic oath like doctors and the arguments in the book is that maybe they should because you know these companies you know they have a bottom line and that's to make money and none of them really stop to think about oh this could backfire and <laughs> cause a lot of problem there's just one anecdote specifically where they talk about how in 2014 Facebook tried this experiment out where they deliberately flooded people's newsfeed with only negative news uh, just for all day. And they didn't tell anyone. They didn't give anyone any warning. There was no consent. They just did this as an experiment. And just reading that, I was like, holy shit, like, that's insane that they did that. And like, I don't remember ever hearing about that anywhere, but it's in this book. And, it, and just stuff like that is just constantly going on. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to getting to the how we can fix it part because uh, it's not doing wonders for my mood right now. <laughs> um, HT, you've been uh, you finished Dune. I did. I finally finished Dune. This is the uh, 1965 science fiction novel by Frank Herbert. I started a while ago. Um, I haven't been able to finish to read it quite um, consistently, and it's also a very long book. I think it's like 800 pages or something, but. I really enjoyed it. Um, going off of my initial impressions, it really does read sort of like a high fantasy novel. And um, I think the it was Jacob who um, has read this book and who uh, compared it in our Slack to Game of Thrones. And I can very much see that resemblance because I, I'm a huge fan of the Song of Ice and Fire series by George R. R. Martin. And it has a lot of those similarities in terms of just like the sprawling uh, depiction of this sort of kind of feudal society and uh, the scheming and politics that goes into it, as well as just this ambitious, um, rich world building that um, Herbert is like amazingly just goes into without really any explanation. Um, I really, I can especially see it. There's a scene, I think early, like, I don't know, two, three chapters into Dune in which there is a dining scene uh, where one of the characters kind of um, scopes out everyone else at this, at this table and at this, at this dinner and uh, looks into like their motivations and their, um, what they want and what they're trying to scheme for. And that was the part that I, uh, really starting to enjoy this book and saw a lot of those uh, those resemblances to A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, Herbert doesn't quite have the affection that George R. R. Martin has for launching into long descriptions of food, but um, I really liked it. Um, the so story at its core and its broad jokes is kind of simple. It's basically Hamlet, but um, the world building, again, is just like, is so dense and so just... Um, uh, ambitious that sometimes it took 
it was hard for me to wrap my mind around, especially in the latter half. I enjoyed the first half quite a bit um, in terms of how it just kind of transformed from this uh, these political machinations into this action adventure and the story of survival. And uh, later on, it felt like the characters kind of became less... Um, compelling to me just because they uh, were the main character, especially Paul, became almost godlike. And I didn't really enjoy that, but um, and it felt like that was uh, Herbert kind of bending to the, the, the requirements of the story to become this really audacious uh, sci-fi story. But uh, I really enjoyed it, is what I mean to say. And um, I think I probably will try to check out some of the other books in the saga. It does feel like it gets a little bit um, dense and convoluted, but I really enjoyed this first book, and I want to see uh, where this story goes or where it came from, I'm guessing, because it's a generation-spanning saga, and I'm assuming that, well, most of them are sequels, but they'll be prequels. Am I right, Jacob? Uh, all of Herbert's novels, if I remember correctly, are sequels following this one, but his mm. son uh, co-wrote a, a, a whole bunch more, including some prequels. I can't recommend the ones co-written by his uh, son. They have their fans. Depends on how deep you want to go. Um, but yes, the Herbert sequels do spiral off into some pretty wild places. I don't think they're ever as good as the first book, but you you really can't accuse him of not really going for it. I mean, there's a reason why his books have little literal glossaries and because they, they don't pause to like hold your hand. You got to like roll with the stuff he's throwing at you. Yeah, it really does. I, I enjoyed that too. I don't, um, I like when movie, when books uh, try to challenge you in that way, even if sometimes it can be a little hard to all kind of keep track of. Now that you've finished reading this book, HT, I'm wondering like the prospect of this movie coming up, like, are you more excited? Are you more worried that it's not going to like be a good adaptation of this, this you know, written word? I'm really excited. I think that um, if anyone can tackle this the story and these um, uh, the story that it can be Denis Villeneuve, and I know that he's planned to uh, split it into two movies at least, which I think is really wise because halfway through the book there is sort of a time jump, um, and I think that with this cast too, they could really pull it off. It's just um, something that they need to uh, take into account, just like all the characters and how um, this, how it's more about just kind of this, like almost like political schemes with some prophecies thrown in. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it could turn out well. Um, the world building, uh, we'll see how it translates into on the screen. I'm sure that they'll come up with something much more visually arresting than the, the sort of campy stuff we saw in the 80s film, which I'm going to check out at some point. I really want to see um, the David Lynch film because I know that it's known to be a disaster, but I'm really curious to see what how it um what what it looks like really oh ht it is, it is a beautiful disaster um now <laughs> now that you've read the book you should be able to follow it like people who i know people who don't know what's happening in it it's because it just it, it adapts the story without explaining a damn thing and well, well just... didn't the screenings for that come with like a page of vocabulary words that you had to learn I believe originally did yeah <laughs> but yeah it, it's fascinating because it has that it's a big budget you know star wars level production Mm-hmm. And still, one time Dave Lynch had that much money in a movie, and oh man, it is. <laughs> Watch it and report back, HD. We'll talk about it. I will. I'm excited. Oh, I will say I'm interested to see how Denis Villeneuve tackles some of the the racial elements. I mean, it's not overtly like 
racist or anything, but there are some characters and uh, groups that are coded to be people of color. And I'm interested to see if um, Vienov tries to incorporate that into his adaptation or if it's just something he'll just be like, okay, never mind. We're just going to cast as we want. Yeah, without spoiling anything, I think a wise choice would be to have the character played by Javier Bardem in the film uh, take on more of a mentor role than he does in the book. I think that'd be a, a wise choice for the movie. Have you seen the 2013 documentary Yordorowski's Dune? I haven't. Um, I've only heard tales of it. Oh, well, you should check that out after you see the, the Lynch film. I will. Yes. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, I've been watching not much this week. I watched Survivor. I watched Survivor, like I, a, a big Survivor person. And uh, tonight is actually the season finale. And th- there's a point in Survivor that the the cast on the island gets so small, and all of the people are trying to oust like one person. And in the good seasons of Survivor, the ones that are dramatic, that one person like somehow for weeks on weeks like is finds a way to stay in the game either they they win uh the challenge that that gives them immunity or they find an immunity idol and it's like they they are you know the protagonist of the story and you're you're hoping this this underdog is going to be able to retain them you know stay in this game and uh that is what's happening on this season of survivor and it's it's a lot of fun so i i, I recommend survivor if, if if no one's watched it and you know two decades like was the case with me until uh i think last year so anyways um i've been watching nothing else of note i'm seeing the premiere of john wick chapter three tonight but uh ben and chris i know you have already seen it and ht has already talked about it uh what did you guys think chris you go first Oh, it rules. Uh, my review is up at SlashFilm.com. Everyone, please go read it. But I loved it. I actually think this is the best entry in the series. I've seen some people disagree. I, I've seen some people complain that they, they they don't think it's as personal as the, the previous two films, and that way they, they don't like it as much. But uh, I don't I don't really agree with that. And just uh, I, I loved it from beginning to end. The first, like, 10 to 15 minutes of this movie is, like, the most – like thrilling sequence I've seen in a very long time. Um, it's it's like Fury Road levels of, of great action filmmaking. It's just this nonstop chase and there's this one shot involving an axe that is so the way it's set up it, it just had me like laughing my ass off on how well it, it, it's carried out. It's 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 great and then, uh, I can't wait to see it again. So my problem with this movie is that the beginning is so great and sets such a high bar for the rest of the film that the rest of the film is not quite able to clear that. I think it's like the beginning is exactly what you just said. I mean, it's it's like if the film stopped at the 30 minute mark, it would be, you know, among the greatest action movies ever made, like no question, hands down. But I think it, it falls off a little bit, although there are some really tremendous uh peaks throughout like the part where Halle Berry comes in which she has a smaller role than I thought she would but she really makes the most of her screen time in this film and uh there's some some stuff at the end where um Lance Reddick's character gets involved and HT did a great interview with Lance Reddick that you should read uh first last film so maybe we can link that in the show notes as well where he sort of uh finally gets into the action a little bit that was all really entertaining to me too um but I think the the variety of the different styles of action in the beginning uh, gives way to a little bit of sameness as the movie goes along. Chris, do you disagree with that? 
Uh, I don't, I don't really think so. I think one of the things I liked about the movie the most, and I say this in my review is that after that opening, the movie kind of becomes about how goddamn tired John Wick is because the, the span of the movie is, it's only like a, not even a week. It's only like three days or something like that that have happened in between these three movies. And, you know, after that opening, he he's injured and he's tired. And like the rest of the movie, it's really about him being really, really tired. Like there's this great fight scene at the end where he's fighting two guys and he has to keep like pausing to take a breath. And I, I, I really liked that touch. And I think that's why the rest of the movie feels kind of not as, hyped up as the beginning because i feel like that's part of the story it's about how you know he can't keep running forever and he's just getting really worn out yeah i agree with that i think for me maybe just the the gunfights go on a little bit too long there's like you know a minute that on the end of each of them where it's like all right you're just doing more headshots and i love john wick headshots as much as the next guy but it just sort of it starts to drag after a little while but there's enough great stuff in this movie that it's it's easily worth recommending everybody to go to go see it i just don't know if it's like um uh quite i i don't i have like some reservations about the movie where i know a lot of people and maybe chris you're one of them it's just like no reservations whatsoever this is you know straight brilliance all the way from beginning to end but anyway See, this worries me a bit, Ben, because I feel like out of everybody on this podcast, on the site, I, I feel like my opinion usually aligns clo- more closely to yours than anybody else's. But I'm seeing it tonight. Monday on the podcast, we had a whole podcast with Jacob and Ben talking about Game of Thrones with some special guests. I know you guys saw the, the episode. Is there anything else you guys want to say about it here? I mostly want to plug Monday's episode because... Uh, as I talked about in the Slash Some Slack, I was extremely aggravated following the episode's airing, not because I didn't like the episode, I actually loved it, because the discourse online was so knee-jerk and so um, ill-thought-through on both sides that I did not feel good about Game of Thrones again until Ben and special guest Lindsay Romaine from Nerdist, we all sat down and had a measured conversation about what we liked and didn't like, and suddenly I liked Game of Thrones again after, like, being bombarded with negativity um, from all sides about the episode. So if, if you're feeling like really bummed up with Game of Thrones these days, I think a good conversation can do you some good and you should re- listen to the episode. I agree. Very cool. Okay, uh, let's move on to, I guess, Detective Pikachu. Uh, Brad and Jacob saw this. Uh, Brad, what did you think? Um, I really liked it. I don't think that it's um, amazing or any like a game changer by any means, but it's, it's a really fun movie. Ryan Reynolds definitely... Uh, is what makes it work so well, along with the fantastic world building, uh, setting up the Pokemon universe in live action film is done extremely well. Uh, makes it feel lived in and get, gives it a sense of history. Uh, it almost the movie itself almost functions like like a junior version of Deadpool, uh, but without the the meta jokes to to go along with it. Because um, Ryan Reynolds is really just kind of just being a wisecracking, uh, you know, Pikachu basically. Um, but my, I feel like the story itself is a bit formulaic, feels very simple, and it's it's really just a, a carbon copy of Zootopia, just with Pokemon. And I was a little bit confused by the ending of the of the story because 
it kind of makes the all, all the rest of the movie feel really weird. It, it um, makes no sense. The ending of the movie makes absolutely no sense. And yeah, I, I, we can't really get into spoilers here. Yeah, and I found myself just wondering about the, the logistics about how it all works, um, especially considering the big... Yeah, like, I can't really say anything more than that, but I was very flummoxed by the ending of this movie. Um, the ending but, of this movie, I will say, I don't want to interrupt, but the, the ending of this movie is the, the kind of glimmer of the absurdity that I wanted this movie to get into because I felt like it could have gone more balls to the wall and that ending was just so bizarre uh, that I feel like they could have leaned into that and done something a little bit stranger. Yeah, I I can't say too much more about like what I specifically thought was weird and the problems I had with it without spoiling anything, but um, it didn't keep me from enjoying the movie. Um, I still had a lot of fun with it. I, I would like to see more movies set in this Pokemon universe. Um, really, it kind of made me want to see like almost like some kind of underdog uh, sports movie set in the Pokemon universe. Um, but yeah, it was it's it's pretty good. I I, I had fun with it. Yeah, it's a super cute and super nice and very much a children's movie, which sh- should go without saying because it's Pokemon. I know, like I have a nostalgic twinge for this for for this universe. I played the original games back in the '90s, and I haven't really kept up with uh, anything recently, uh, but. I think that everything in this movie is super cute and well executed and the world feels fleshed out and real. The Pokemon are wonderful. The story is incredibly basic to the point where 30 minutes in, if you've seen more than two movies, you know where this is going. And that's fine. Like this movie was not made for me. It was made for 10, 11 year olds. And you know, that's hundred percent fine. They should not be making Pokemon movies for men in their thirties. They should be making Pokemon movies for kids who are between the ages of eight and 12, who, who is the right age to enjoy this uh, universe and these characters. The one thing that bugged me is that the Pokemon games are entirely about uh, capturing wild Pokemon and trying them to fight each other, which when you really pause and think about it, it's kind of upsetting. And in this movie, uh, it takes place in a city where Pokemon battles are outlawed where Pokemon aren't kept in captivity and they're allowed to roam around. And it, it feels like it's the uh, movie's way of reacting to the fact that when you literalize the actual plot of the games, it's essentially cockfighting in a really icky way. So I'm wondering if they ever made another Pokemon movie that was a more traditional story. You have to find a way to explain that, oh, they're capturing these wild animals, imprisoning them in these little balls, and forcing them to fight each other for entertainment of human beings. And that, to me, it's always upset me a little bit. Uh, And seeing that uh, the movie kind of acknowledged, yeah, that kind of sucks. Here's a city where that doesn't happen, while also being set in a game universe where that's the entire point of the game. I was a little baffled by that. HT, am I off point here? No, I actually talked about that in my review too, because yeah, it basically it basically is glorified cockfighting, and I feel like they almost skirt around it. They're like, that's something a little messy. We don't want to talk about it. So here's a nice city where none of that happens, except you know you have the underground fights, but it's it's seen as something unseemly. So uh, yeah, it's it's interesting because um, I I feel like they saw that element and they're like, we don't want to go too di- too dark into that because this is a Hollywood movie for kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree with all of this. Um, let's move on to Barry. Uh, Jacob, you've been watching this? Yeah, I've been keeping up with the new season, and it's, so it's fantastic. I just wanted to bring it up here because uh, episode five of this season may be my favorite individual episode of Barry. It's just a, it's, it's almost a standalone story. You could probably enjoy it without having watched the rest of the show, although you should watch the rest of the show. It's just this half-hour increasingly insane action comedy scene that just goes off the rails in every way you can imagine. And uh, 
most recent episode did that great Barry thing where it swerved hard from slapstick into serious crime drama in a way that shouldn't work but totally does. And the last frame before it cuts to credits uh, is, is agonizing. I can't wait for the season finale. But uh, I know that, Chris, you just caught up with the show, right? Uh, yes. I had watched the like the first, I think, five episodes of season one, and I just fell off of watching it for whatever, for whatever reason. And everyone was talking about um, not this this re- recent episode, the episode before it that you mentioned. And I was like, all right, I, I got to get caught up and see this. And so I, I burned through it. And it really is pretty much as good as everyone is saying. Um, the, the the most recent episode, particularly the, the last like 10, 15 minutes had me feeling like I was going to have an anxiety attack. It was, it was so like outrageously intense, especially like for a show like this. And uh you know, I, I feel like the marketing did a really bad job selling this show because it made it look like, you know, like, oh, he's a he's a wacky hitman, and that's really not what this show is. And before I, I, I started watching it, I, I heard a lot of people being like, oh, this show is so dark. And it is dark, but I, I feel like people don't realize what that means. Like, it's not just dark in the terms of, you know, its content. It's not, you know, dark because it's violent and it's about, you know, dark things, even though it is that. But it's dark in that it's it's a, it's really good at at conveying these characters especially Barry's character of just being this really emotionally destroyed individual and it does a really great job of conveying his his sort of inner thoughts without spelling them out like every once in a while he'll say how he's feeling but more often than not you can just tell from the way Bill Hader acts. And by the way, I had no idea Bill Hader was such a great actor, but apparently he is. Uh, just You can just tell from his performance and his body language and what he do, he's doing with like his, his expressions of how you know screwed up he is and how emotionally destroyed and damaged he is. And uh, it's one of the best shows for conveying that. It, it's, it, I don't think it's even, even though people are raving about it, I, I still don't think it's actually getting as much credit as it deserves. No? Yeah, I totally agree. I think I think Hater is like unreal, you know, because you he covers that ground that you were just talking about, but then some of his reaction shots, his comedic reaction shots are just like next level as well. Like there's this really terrific monologue from Sarah Goldberg who plays the Sally character in this most recent episode where she just like goes off and then the camera cuts back and you know that moment is like I think it's her best moment in the entire series so far and then the camera cuts back to Hater and he's got this look on his face that is just hilarious and um HG I know that you were talking about how you were a little bit uh, disappointed with the way that the show handled the Sally character but I think it's really doing right by her in season two so I I would encourage you to um especially if that's like a, a primary reason why you sort of dropped off with the show i would encourage you to check out the second season because there's so much great stuff in in this season overall yeah um yeah that was one of the my chief disappointments with season one but um i do need to catch up with season two i've heard great things about it i heard it's even better than season one in a lot of aspects so um, i'm excited to see them finally do right by her and the other characters outside of barry too yeah, there's some really, really funny, like, insider Hollywood stuff in this most recent episode. I was laughing out loud. Like, Barry doesn't know. He's supposed to, he's like an aspiring actor, but he doesn't know the difference between a movie and a feature, <laughs> even though they're, they're the same thing. He thinks that they're two different things. A lot of, like, really, like, inside, you know, behind-the-scenes Hollywood kind of stuff that anybody who reads Slash Film on a regular basis will, uh, I'm sure, find very, very funny. Yeah. I'm, I'm a few episodes behind on this. This is, like, the kind of show that I like to... 
enjoy in bigger quantities than just one episode. I don't feel the need that I need to see it week to week. Um, I'm, I guess I'm probably alone here in, in that um, for Barry. But I feel like it's not, it, you know, you don't get anything of like from it from pondering it week to week. So I feel like I, I, I'm just going to wait until second season ends and, and just digest it then. Um, the Matrix had its anniversary. And I know a couple of you have been revisiting. Ben, you rewatched the first film? I did. My wife had never seen it, and it's on Netflix right now. So, um, and with like the, we just rewatched uh, John Wick Chapter Two, and then I think we had seen John Wick Chapter Three, and uh, I, you know, there are some references in the John Wick movies to the Matrix franchise, and I just wanted to revisit that movie because it's been probably I don't know ten years or something, maybe a little bit longer since I'd watched the Matrix, and uh, man, that movie really holds up. And Jacob talked about it. Uh, not too long ago and I don't really have much to add other than like it's kind of amazing to watch this movie that seems like relatively small um, that had such a big impact on the culture and and such a lasting impact because this movie came out in 1999 and that's 20 years ago and it still feels uh, like we're having discussions about that movie or that incorporate aspects of that movie like almost every day so um and, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where it's not just the ideas in the film that stand and, and stand the test of time. It's the kind of thing where when you revisit it, it's like every aspect of that movie just really, really works on a basic fundamental level. So uh, big shout out to The Matrix. But, Jacob, I know you've been catching up with the sequels again. Yeah, after revisiting the original, well, my wife and I rewatched Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions. And there were movies that I feel like people were really bummed out by at the time. People like were really down on them. And even the third one was even a box office disappointment. But 20 years later, or nearly 20 years later in these ones cases, uh, time has been kind to them. They are extremely messy. They're never as, as fully formed as the first one is. But it's Wachowski's making the movie they want to make as opposed to, you know, redoing The Matrix again. And they're just putting their hearts out there in a way that is incredibly admirable. And I found really satisfying on revisit. And some of the stuff that was like endlessly mocked in 2003, uh, it, it feels really ahead of its time. Like I remember in 2003, people made couldn't stop making fun of the scene where Morpheus preaches to a cavern full of uh, Zion citizens and they all have a rave. <laughs> and I seen really, at the time that was like the thing people mocked endlessly. But then so I talked about this, like, and actually I have a full-fledged 15-minute conversation about this after the movie. That's, that's kind of the movie Matrix Reloaded it is. The idea of, in the centuries after the after the end of the world, the idea that religion and, um, and club music have merged together to form a unique fo- form of, you know, mutual celebration is actually a really interesting idea. And the idea that community, community space, the idea of a club where you're, where you're dancing and, and, like, throwing everything off your shoulders also being your church is such a fascinating idea. And at the time we were just making fun of the fact that the Wachowski had a rave scene in a cave and ignoring the fact that it was this really, really like sincere look at the evolution of human culture under the circumstances under which it would grow when people are living underground, when machines dominate the earth. And it all leads in, in directions that disappointed at the time, but I think are really thrilling and unique these days and i, I want to know am i alone or are the matrix sequels actually good now i haven't revisited them in years i i think they have their moment i mean that 
that highway chase in the second one is incredible. And it was like all, it was all done like practically, which makes it even crazier because they would never do that today. So I do think they have their moments. I also think they're really far up their own ass. Like that scene where (laughs) that scene where uh, Neo has a conversation, I think his name is like the architect and he keeps being like quid pro quo. It's like, shut up. It goes over like 45 (laughs) minutes and it's like, unbearable but i do think i think they're so i think like most wachowski films they're so overloaded with crazy ideas that you have to appreciate them because no one else makes films like that now and they make them on huge on huge grand scales and they may not be beloved by like the general public but at least they're you know at least they're different yeah i was dreading the architect scene but um watching it again uh I think it works mainly because Keanu Reeves' performance in that scene where he's using his natural blankness as like the perfect deadpan reaction to all that bullshit makes it work for me in a way it didn't 20 years ago. But yeah, I, I, I do think that their, their, their reach goes beyond their grasp often in these movies, but I, I can't help but admire that, you know, all these years later. I actually think The Matrix Reloaded is a fantastic sequel and the only thing that is uh it's marred by is the unsatisfying conclusion in revolutions well also the cg uh, more I mean, age better than you think honestly i, I was surprised that's, that's just a product of its of its time like it's obviously it's not perfect but it does, does not look terrible yeah but i mean they went for it and they were pushing it to its limits like they were using it in a way that i think a lot of hollywood was afraid to use like especially in that like um the action scene that takes place in that little like courtyard park, wherever it is. Yeah, with all the hundreds of Agent Smiths. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. So uh, Ben, now that uh, you have shown Amy the original Matrix, are you going to show her the sequels? I don't know. I'm I'm really torn about this. I mean, hearing Jacob talk about it uh, makes me like inch a little bit closer to the probability of maybe doing it, but I don't know, man, because I've I've it's been a long time since I've revisited those two. Um, and I, I don't know if I want to fully mar the experience of watching the original because she really enjoyed the first one. So uh, TBD on that. Okay. Uh, HT, what have you been watching this week? I watched a film called Border. Uh, this is a film directed by Ali Abassi. It's a Swedish, uh, a, I guess, fantasy film about a customs officer who has this uh, sort of facial deformity and um, with that she has an incredible sense of smell in which she can sniff people's emotions off of them and uh, one day she meets this uh, man who looks like her and uh, learns something incredibly life-changing about her own identity. Uh, This is a film that I think was one of Jacob's favorites of last year's. Am I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yes. It barely missed my list. Uh, and it was, but it was my one of my favorite films from Fantastic Fest last year. And, oh, it, well, I'm, I'm glad you left the plot summary there, HG, because this movie is like, a, it's watching it unfold is magical. It really is. Um, I don't know what I expected of this, but I didn't expect quite the fable that it was. Um, and it's it's weird. It's unnerving. The scene that I remember Jacob really gunning for to make our top moments of 2018 list is just as wild and bizarre and um, cathartic as he describes it. It's I can't I can't go into it any further, but it is uh, it's 
something I have like very rarely that you see in um in a movie. And um it's it's a very while it has this sort of cold, uh unnerving feel to it, it does have this kind of warm empathetic core to it. It is about just like these two outsiders who come together and find a connection with each other before the film kind of takes a dark sinister turn. Uh, it's really good. Um, I highly recommend it. It's on Hulu now, which is where I watched it. Um, and so, yeah, check it out if you want to check out the strange little Swedish film that uh, will surprise you. It should be mentioned it's based on a story about a guy who wrote... Um... Uh, let the right one in to give you an idea of the tone, even though it's a different filmmaking team. Yes. Okay, so uh, HG, what else have you been watching? I also watched The Hustle, uh, which is the Anne Hathaway, Rebel Wilson comedy that is a remake of... Wait, wait, did that come out? It came out uh, <laughs> to very little fanfare, um, which despite its sort of... Um, the anticipation leading up to it because it is a gender-bent remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and it's not great. Um, I didn't really enjoy it. Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson have good chemistry, but that is not enough to save this uh, just um, chore of a movie. Uh, it's not really that funny. The comedy feels very dated, too, despite coming out in 2019. Uh, it feels at best like it's from the early 2000s, if not from uh, the 1980s, from which the first film was um, released. Uh, there's a lot of just, just rampant fat jokes with Rebel Wilson and her kind of leaning into her real outlandish personality that she, I felt like, was starting to break away from and did not in this film. Uh, Anne Hathaway is doing something, which I enjoyed. She's always putting on some sort of accent or doing something like 100%, which I really appreciated. But otherwise, it's not a great movie. And uh, it kind of makes the case that women deserve better than the gender swaps remakes that we have been getting. Deserve better than that accent that Anne Hathaway is trying to do. She's doing something, and it's may or may not be working, but I, I admire her for doing it. Uh, what, what else have you been watching? <laughs> I also watched uh, Someone Great, which is one of the new Netflix originals. It stars Gina Rodriguez, Lakeith Stanfield, Brittany Snow, and uh, DeWanda Wise. Um, it's fine as well it is a sweet uh sort of 20 something uh kind of romantic comedy i would guess i guess you'd say unromantic comedy it's about a girl who uh, is dumped by her long-term boyfriend and is about to make the move cross country from new york to la and decides to have one last wild night with her two girlfriends and uh it's sweet in that way but the movie itself kind of does feel like a um vehicle for a sound sort of a soundtrack or some sort of music label because it has all of these um, really hip uh, songs and artists contributing to it as well as cameos from random artists and the entire plot also revolves around uh, some artists that I'm not sure is real or not because I don't know anything about current music um, so it uh, it's fine it kind of feels just like your typical Netflix original, something that fulfills an algorithm, even though Gina Rodriguez is really fun and uh, charming in it. They, they know and, exactly what parts of the movie you keep on rewatching, HT. Yes, they do. They do. <laughs> um, I also watched another Netflix um, original called Rila Kamu and Karu, which I enjoyed immensely more. This is an 
anime series, but it's actually a stop motion anime series um, created by uh, Dwarf Studio and uh, Son X. And it's about this um, this character that's actually a merchandise character, uh, Rila Kamu. Uh, it's kind of similar to like Hello Kitty or um, Agretsuko that we've seen before. And it's way better than a series about a merchandise character should be. It's this really soothing, calming balm of a series that uh, follows this office worker named Karu and um, her sort of uh, ensemble of, of living and living stuffed animals that um, live in her apartment. They're like, they're anthropomorphic. They can't talk, but they have really cute gestures. And uh, sort of her struggles, she has friends, for example, who are moving on faster than her. She's feeling lonely and isolated in her job. Uh, And um, it's a little bit melancholy in a way, but it's really beautifully made. Uh, the, The color scheme is all in pastels. The stop motion is just so gorgeous and i recommend this if you're looking for something calming and soothing in a hellscape of a world this is something that will definitely soothe your soul very cool what's the last thing you've been watching last thing i've been watching is another anime all right i might go a little long on this one because this is something that is kind of close to my heart so fruits basket is um uh, how do i explain and it's not fruit basket but fruits basket (laughs) Fruits Basket. It's like the Japanese way of saying saying Fruits Basket. But um, this Fruits Basket was one of the first manga series I ever read and owned as a kid. I picked up the first book, I think, when I was like 11 or 12. And uh, it was a hugely formative series on me. It uh, it's kind of starts off as your typical uh, shoujo romantic comedy. Shoujo, for those who don't know, is the uh, one of the two kind of main genres of manga slash anime. There's shoujo and shonen. Shoujo is the kind that appeals to girls, teenage girls, and it typically deals with uh, rom-coms and more slice of life stuff. Whereas shonen is the action. Um, and adventure stories you see that is like Naruto or Dragon Ball and what have you. So this is a very, this at first starts off as a very typical shoujo uh, story about a young girl who is an orphan and sort of finds herself moving into this house uh, with two of her classmates and a guy, um, the two classmates are guys too, uh, and uh, kind of finding herself um, involved and falling into their strange world in which um because this family that they're from is uh cursed to turn into animals of the zodiac whenever they're hugged by a member of the opposite sex and that sounds like a, a, a premise that is um perfect for all sorts of shenanigans and uh For the first half of the series, it is, but then it turns into this uh, searing um, examination of depression, abuse, uh, cult, (laughs) cult mentality, and uh, it it centers around this young girl who kind of is uh, this sort of healing um, element for all of these people who are just tortured and pained and incredibly... um, uh, um, anxious and um, in some way. And uh, it's a, this sweet slice of life story as well as a great uh, sort of melodrama with some wackier fantasy elements. Um, so that's the premise. There is a manga <laughs> series uh, that 
<laughs> that uh, came out, I think it first came out in the 90s and then went on until the early 2000s. There was an anime series that was the first adaptation of it that um, was released in 2001, but the anime uh, finished airing before the manga had finished, so it kind of had this truncated version of the story. And cut to 2019. There is a new anime remake, uh, which is set to adapt the entire manga storyline. And um, I was incredibly excited to see this happen, as I adore, adore the manga. And as I said, it was something that was incredibly formative to me um, and really helped me deal with, I guess, the angsty issues I was dealing with when I was in middle school. Um, but uh, it's, I, at first, was a little bit on the fence about this remake because the first couple episodes... Um, adhere really strictly to the manga so much so that it felt a little uninspired it was exactly like the same um, images the same poses and um, the animation too was is very like very wispy so I wasn't so fond of that but uh, it's come into its own as it's gone further into the episodes and is starting to add some more of its own sort of creative flares and um I feel like they've got a real hold on the characters as well. And uh, I'm starting to feel the nostalgia for this series as well as appreciate just like a coming um, to our screens again uh, in a more modern form. And I'm yes, I'm really excited about Fruits Basket. I may have gotten a little obsessed with it again last night and just uh, started reading and watching um, it for hours. So um, it's only, I think, six episodes in to the new series. But um, if you like... Uh, sweet slice of life stories with a sort of uh, examination about uh, depression and loneliness and uh, how you can heal from that, then I recommend Fruits Basket. That seems like such a very specific recommendation. <laughs> like, it's not it's... like if you like romantic comedies, watch this. Like, okay, so I hate to drag this out further, but HT, if you had to say like a TV show or a movie that is not an anime, that if if you liked blank, you might want to watch this. What what, what would it be? Hmm, I, would, I can't think of it off the top of my head. What <laughs> exact, um, you know, similarity would be? I'd have to think about that a little more. Okay, because it's well, such a unique premise. But yeah, uh, I'll come back I'll, to you. I'll, I'll think of something a little later. Yeah, I'll come back to you. Uh, Brad, what have you been watching? Uh, in addition to watching Detective Pikachu, I got around to watching The Front Runner, uh, which was the uh, political drama last year starring Hugh Jackman as presidential candidate Gary Hart, who was basically the first um, presidential candidate to have his personal life held under such high scrutiny by uh, the press and his constituents because it was discovered that uh, he kind of had somewhat of an open marriage uh, where his wife kind of turned the other uh, way um, and he was having affairs with women uh, every now and then and it blew up in his face and he, Gary Hart himself, was kind of just flabbergasted and didn't understand why this was something that uh, the press and people were interested in. He, like he was, he was trying to make it all about policies and just the, you know, what... Um, was actually the foundation of most presidential campaigns at that point. Uh, and then, and but then after this, this was kind of the thing that turned uh, the tables on the presidential campaign run and how important it was that people see how candidates behaved in their personal life. And um, the movie does a, a pretty good job of balancing 
how ludicrous it kind of is that we take those kinds of things into such importance uh, when looking at our presidential candidates, but also why some people do view it as important. Um, balancing the idea of we, we should be caring much more about his policies and things about running the country rather than uh, whether or not he cheats on his wife. But at the same time, how can you trust a guy to run your country properly and be honest with you if you can't even be honest with his, his wife kind of thing? Um, so it's it's an interesting balance, but it's it also is kind of... It, it kind of hit, runs the same speed the entire way through. There aren't really any, like, ups and downs or uh, much, you know, dramatic tension or anything like that because you, you know where it's headed, you know what it's about, you, you get it, and it kind of stick, stays at that same speed the whole way through. Um, Hugh Jackman's really good in it. It's, it's, it's a fine movie. I didn't, I, there's not really anything bad about it, but I, I can understand why it kind of got pushed to the side once award season came around because it doesn't really have anything that sticks with you after you're done with it. And I think also in today's political times, people are looking for it to say something about the now. Yeah. And, you know, I think it does, but it does it in such a subtle way. It's definitely not as bombastic as something like Vice. Um, and it doesn't have anything poignant to say, so like something like even The Post. Um, I think what it has to say is is much more subtle and and because and almost as like a a statement like this is a complicated issue and it's like yeah we get it but like tell us something more <laughs> yeah what, what else have you been watching uh and then i so whenever i'm working i have something on in the background it's, it's always something that i've seen i can't watch stuff that i haven't seen because i get distracted by it but i always like having stuff that i've seen on the background it's, it's like it's comfort noise it's just not something nice to have there uh, and so uh, one of the three shows that I uh, circle back around to every now and then is 30 Rock, and I just started rewatching it again. I, I don't even know how many times I've watched the entire series at this point, but it's <clears throat> probably my favorite all-time comedy series. Um, it's it's extremely fast-paced. It's very funny. For for a network show especially, it's it's edgy and hilarious um, for, for not – being able to, you know, do things like drop drop F-bombs like a show like Veep or something like that. Um, it's just, I, I laugh so much still at it all, all the time. It is just such a funny show. If you've never watched 30 Rock, uh, please go out of your way to do it. It's on Hulu. Every single season uh, an episode is there, and it's just it's just so good. It's, it's still good. Okay, let's move on to Chris. Chris, you finally saw the Deadwood, Deadwood movie that is coming out. I know people have been looking forward to this for some time. Fans of Deadwood are, you know, fanatical and they love the series. Did it live up to your expectations? Uh, it did. It was a little different than I was expecting. And this is yet another thing I have a review up on Slashlam.com right now of um, I was expecting it to be more like, you know, how sometimes when they make a movie following a show that they make it so the movie can sort of stand on its own and not just be a continuation of the show that's not what this is so if if you're one of those people who's like oh i've never seen deadwood maybe i'll watch the movie anyway don't do that you need to watch the show because this uh this is more like one long final episode than it is a movie um it, it, even though it's set 10 years after the final episode of season three ended, it, it pretty much picks up and closes out every single dangling storyline left in that last episode. It, it really is a conclusion to everything. And while I really liked it and I was glad to be back with these characters, that sort of bothered me a little bit just because I wanted, I guess I just wanted more after all this time. But at the same time, 
it's really good to get closure and it was kind of poignant to, you know, it, it's very much a conclusion. It's very much about saying goodbye to these characters. So, uh, you know, if you're a fan of the show, like I am, you, you'll love being able to spend the time with them again. You'll love being able to see th these, these great actors all back together again. But if you were hoping for like an actual movie that, that tells a whole new story, you're, you're not going to get that. You're, you're very much getting, a conclusion to season three, but that's not a bad thing. It's just not what I, I was expecting. So basically what you're saying is we got the, we finally got the two hour s series finale that we never got. Right. Exactly. Peter, by the way, I finally found, came up with a comparison for fruits basket. Okay. What is it? The, probably the closest would be my so-called life. Uh, the rea the, the 90s series starring Claire Danes, um, and maybe the time travel part of Felicity for like the wackier elements, but the way that my so-called life especially sort of goes into um, issues about uh, teenage depression and anxiety and homelessness and um, LGBT issues with a sort of almost after-school-ish bent, uh, that's something that Fruits Basket has uh, in spades. I'm sorry, can you go, can you go back? Did you just say time travel elements yeah, and Felicity? I, I was going to ask her about that too. I think you're thinking of Alias. No, no. she's not. Or is there, not. There's, there's time, time travel. travel? There's, there's time, time travel. travel Felicity. Felicity. I, I've watched all of Felicity. I don't. I do not remember time travel. I think it's like the last season or something, and it's not really time travel. I guess you would say it's kind of like her doing over her choice. Um, and you could think that it was a dream, but it is time travel. <laughs> oh, okay. I remember what you're talking about. What? That's yeah. not that's not time travel. That's kind of like well, her imagining what would have happened. We'll call it time travel. Is this like a is this like a um what's that Gwyneth Paltrow movie? Is it bounce? A si uh sideways or sliding doors. Sliding doors, doors. yeah. Door. Yeah. Is it like that? Kind of, yeah. That's, I, had no, I had no idea that that was a thing in Felicity. I was that uh, I've never watched the show, so the fact that you mentioned time travel, I was like, "Wait a minute, what?" What well, was produced by J.J. Abrams? So. Yeah, J.J. Abrams flexing his uh, time travel uh, accolades. Yeah, uh, Chris, you also why are you doing your shoot to yourself? You saw a dog's journey. I have to review it. This is this was work related. I would not have seen this on my own, and uh, I'll have a review of this up on the site this week, but. Uh, please stop making these movies, Hollywood. I don't, I don't, uh, uh, this, I actually didn't see the first one, but I know the, the premise and the premise of the sequel is pretty much the same where they introduce you to a really cute dog. And then after a half hour, that dog dies. So it can jump into a new dog. It's like a, it's like a Buddhism reincarnation story, but about a dog. But so they don't just kill it once. They keep on killing it. Right, it's multiple dogs dying, and I'm a really big dog lover. I, you know, I have two dogs. I like dogs more than humans, and uh, while I like seeing dogs in the movie, I it, it gets really uh, emotionally draining to keep watching them die because it's not like they die off camera. It's like they show them dying. Like the first time, spoiler alert, the first time the dog dies in this movie, it's like 20 minutes into the movie. And like the vet comes and she gives the dog the shot and, you know, the dog can talk. It's like Josh, Josh Gad narrates the dogs. It's like, look who's talking, but with the dog and you can hear his thoughts. And he's like, Oh, I remember this from before. I feel a little prick. And then all the pain is gone. I was like, I don't want to, why this is terrible. 
I don't want to sit here and hear the dog's inner thoughts of it dying. Like it's just, it, it was very upsetting to me. And so, yeah, I, I didn't like it. I don't want them to make more of these, but they probably will because they make money and people love these movies and they're like, Oh, I love it. It's so emotional and it makes me feel so good. It's like, why would this make you feel good? It's about watching multiple dogs die. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. These movies are surprisingly dark. Like this, the spinoff movie, I guess you would say a dog's way home um, had one just very long scene in which the dog almost starves to death uh, while chained to the corpse of a homeless man. And I was like, what is this movie? What is happening? And why is this child next to me seem so bored? (laughs) Chris, when I assigned this review to you, I I was honestly had forgotten it was a sequel to that movie. So I thought, oh, it'd be really funny. I'm going to make Chris watch a stupid dog movie. Ha ha. I did not realize I'd be sending you to the dog (laughs) death show. Yes. I I thought, you know, I knew it was a sequel to that, but I was like, all right, maybe they won't do multiple dog deaths like they did in the first one. But no, that's, that's really all it is. It's dog dies, jumps in a new body. That dog dies, the dumps in a new body. And it just keeps on go. It's like final destination with dogs. I, oh I not, I I've not seen that movie. Please let me see that movie. <laughs> I've not seen either of these movies, but at least from the trailers, I kind of just hate the the framing of like the dog believes that like their only purpose is to like be something for like their masters. I don't know. It's just like Well, that's the yeah, in this one, as the dog dies the first time, it's his his owner, who's Dennis Quaid, who owned the dog, the original dog when he was a kid. As as the dog is dying, Dennis Quaid selfishly goes up to the dying dog and he's like, please watch over my granddaughter. And it's like, like so now this, this dog can't like stay in it because when the dog dies, it goes to, I guess it's dog heaven, which looks like a wheat field. But because the dog has you know, a purpose given to it by, Devin Qua- by Dennis Quaid, it can't stay in the afterlife. It has to go find the granddaughter and protect it's like just let this dog stay in dog heaven dennis quaid you selfish prick (laughs) i actually i actually saw a shot uh in the trailer where like the dog is in a wheat field and i was like i was like is that heaven are they really going that far it is it's what every time the dog dies it goes to this magic wheat field but then it a new dog is born and it jumps into that that dog's body and it just keeps going and I'm really very glad, upset. I'm really glad to know that Maximus from Gladiator is in the same afterlife as all the dogs. <laughs> so all dogs go to heaven, but they can't stay. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they can stay if Dennis Quaid doesn't give them a task. A job. Yes. <laughs> what if the dog just wants to have its own life and not serve if, like a yeah, higher master? Exactly. Like the, the dog never once stops to think for itself. It's always like, I got to do what the what Dennis Quaid told also like there's this weird thing where Dennis Quaid always knows it's the dog like he shows up later in the movie and even though it's a completely new dog body he's like ah I know it's you <laughs> it's like what the hell <laughs> like why does he know that Dennis Quaid is the dog whisperer yeah. I, 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 I love the alternate version of that where you cut out like the us seeing the dog's journey and it's just Dennis Quaid is like this insane maniac that thinks every dog that comes up to him is <laughs> like ah that's my dog from when I was a kid like sure Dennis Quaid I hope Whatever the dog is able to curse Dennis Quaid so when he dies he comes back as a different human every time <laughs> that <laughs> I think we're describing the, the, the third one, A Dog's Revenge. 
<laughs> oh my god, oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on to Ben. Uh, you've talked a, a bunch about what you've seen, but there, have you seen anything else this week? Yeah, there's one more show. It's called I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. It is a comedy series that is uh, a Netflix original. This show is hilarious. There are only six episodes, and the best thing about the whole show is that each of these episodes only runs between 16 and 18 minutes, and there's only six of them. So this is like the perfect sort of in-between uh, show for whenever you're you don't have that much time to devote to like watching a full thing just throwing on one of these episodes is so great and the it's a sketch comedy show so within those 16 and 17 18 minute episodes you have so many you know uh, rapid fire sketches coming your way and they're uh I mean, there are a lot of them that are really bad. I will admit that. But the, I think the ratio to success versus failure uh, definitely tips way more in the success uh, category. There is um, there's tons of really great guest stars. Uh, Tim Robinson, who is like the creator of the show, um, used to be a Saturday Night Live, uh, I think, writer and then actor and then back to writer again, I think was his trajectory on the show. Um, Brad might be able to correct me if I'm wrong there. And then... Um, yeah, there are a lot of like uh, SNL people that come through, but then like Steven Yeun is in one episode and uh, Will Forte and Cecily Strong and like tons of, of recognizable faces sort of sprinkled all throughout the whole um, thing. And it's uh, completely insane. The the show, the, the comedy premises are like, uh, you know, uh, totally nuts. Um, and it's very ambitious in, in terms of like, this is a show where this guy thinks this very specific thing is very funny and he's just freaking going for it and hoping that the audience finds it funny too. But the best part about it is the short episode, there are really short episodes. So if you don't find one of the sketches funny, you only have to wait, you know, two or three minutes or something until the next one rolls around. Um, so I, I would highly recommend it. It, there were, there's one sketch, uh, involving a horse farm that my wife and I were like crying. We were laughing so hard at it. So, uh, Chris, I know we were talking about this earlier and you said that you'd seen some of it. Have you had a chance to catch up with all of this or are you just a, a couple episodes in? Or no, what? I only, I've only seen the first episode, but that first episode has this one skit about where, where three, three women are out at brunch, which is one of like the funniest things. I was like, I was like crying. It was so funny. So I, I need to catch up with it. It's so great. Yeah. It's called, I think you should leave. It's on Netflix right now. Okay, uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, as usual, my wife and I had a horror movie night, and we started off with the new release, uh, The Prodigy, which came out and kind of vanished quickly earlier this year. It is a uh, horror movie directed by Nicholas McCarthy, and Taylor Schilling stars as a woman who gives birth to a son at the exact moment a serial killer is gunned down in a different state. And if that means the serial killer's soul becomes attached to a newborn son, you are correct. And it's another, another evil kid movie. Uh, and it's surprisingly mean. It, uh, it is a lot of these evil kid movies, you know, um, don't let their evil kids be truly evil. Whereas this evil kid is doing sincerely horrible, bloody, awful things. And the conclusion was uh, rough. The, let's put it that way. It's not necessarily a good time for movies, but it's um, I was certainly entertained by it. If you like your horror to be to have those rough edges, even if it doesn't necessarily surprise you. Uh, Chris, you wrote about this uh, recently in one of your columns, right? Right. I reviewed it when it came out. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It, and um, it, it's a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I don't think it quite sticks the landing, but you're right. It, it, it's it's shockingly nasty for like a mainstream horror film. Like I was expecting 
you know, a lot of mainstream horror is is sort of watered down. And even though I knew going in it was rated R, I was still expecting that. But it goes to some like shockingly cruel places, which I was not expecting. So that, that it gives it a bit more of an edge than your typical creepy kid movie. So it's definitely worth seeing at least once, I think. Yeah, in particular, there's a scene where um, the evil child goes into a uh, hypnosis session with a character played by Colm Fior. And the discussion they had was is is unpleasant to the point where I had to pause the movie for a few minutes and talk to my wife and say, did that movie just go there? Because it, because it did. Um, speaking of horror movies, uh, after that, we were pretty drunk. So we watched All Hallows' Eve, a 2013 movie streaming on Amazon, directed by uh, Damien Leone. It's a horror anthology movie. At first, seems to have wildly different quality from scene to scene, and with the, the apparently the cameras being shot on changing from area to area. And then I realized that the reason it has four or five credited directors of photography is because this is literally several short films that Leon directed that impressed somebody with money who let him shoot wraparounds to turn all those shorts into an anthology. And the call is good, wouldn't be accurate. I think that. Um, it is certainly not boring. It is full of practical effects. It's full of very large swings for the fences. And it's full of all kinds of really weird nastiness. And Leon has something going on. He, he, he def- he's not, he's not going to make anything boring, I don't think. He, he's, but he's also not making anything that would qualify as good or recommend to somebody who's not already really super into watching anything horror-related. It's the weird footnote here is that the, the main character in all these shorts is a villain named Art the Clown. Who, late, who just last year got his own spinoff film called Terrifier, which is streaming on Netflix and is incredibly gory and really hard to watch because it's really awful. <laughs> and uh, so if you're interested in watching Damien Leone try to turn Art the Clown into a horror icon and swing really hard for the home run and not quite make it, uh, Amazon and Netflix respectively. Uh, Chris, and you're a horror guy. Uh, yes or no on Art the Clown? Uh, I've, I've, I've seen both these movies and I, I appreciate the practical effects, but the, that second one terrifier is so insanely gory to the point where I, it, it like my mind goes numb watching it. The, it, it, it's like too much even for me. So I appreciate the, uh, the effort, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know if it's for me. Yeah, uh, and uh, in those side of defense, I watched the series finale of Veep, the show wrapped up in the wake of Game of Thrones uh, last week. So I feel like it kind of got, you know, forgotten a little while people were arguing about, you know, Game of Thrones. But the final episode of Veep, it's a double episode, it's 48 minutes, and it's it's as good of an ending as I could have asked for for Veep. I w- as I talked about on the podcast a few months ago, I've been kind of on the fence about Veep the past few seasons. It's been a little more hit and miss. Uh, the state of politics has me laughing a lot less about these things in general. So the final season just decided to go there. It got as dark as it could get. It completed uh, Selena Meyer, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, uh, completed her transformation to a full-fledged villain. And I wrote a piece uh, on Slash Film that's full of spoilers, so I won't, I won't talk them here, where I talk about how the show suddenly does what I hope Game of Thrones does next week. And the talk about how it does that will be a spoiler. The way it reckons with its monstrous lead character is something that... I think other shows should take note of in the way that I hope that Game of Thrones can touch on because it does something in the last five minutes that blew me away and it's really funny and really true to the show's tone and it allows us to see the bigger picture about TV antagonists who have really horrible crummy behavior. 
So Veep's over now, um, and it ended well. So if you, you're on the fence about ever watching it or diving in at this point, uh, you, you it's, it's worth the journey. It's, it's funny uh, to various extents and ends perfectly. And speaking of TV, uh, with Handmaid's Tale Season 3 starting up soonish, uh, my wife convinced me to finally give Season 2 another shot. I gave up early on when it first arrived, and it's one of her favorite shows, and... So I dove back into season two. Uh, I do think it's not as good as season one. And I think that it really kind of runs out of things to say at certain points where it's just rather than uh, instead of finding new ways to make us feel Mr. Bull, it starts hitting the same note over and over again to the point where it just becomes hard to watch. And I say somebody who loves Game of Thrones. So misery on TV is not new to me, but uh, Handmaid's Tale is making you feel just unpleasant. But the back half of the season starts finding new ways to explore this world and new ways to fight back against the misery. So even though I think season two is still a disappointment, uh, I am looking forward to season three. And I think that the creators of the show are very much aware of the reaction to season two based on the trailer for season three. Uh, HT, I know you reviewed season two for us. Is the back half of season two a little bit better or am I just looking at the bright side of things? Um, back half of season two... Yes. Um, I think at, at least in the final episodes, uh, there are some stellar like um, standalone episodes, especially that center around Elizabeth Moss's character, uh, where she gives just a phenomenal, phenomenal performance. But I completely agree with you in terms of just the wheel spinning that this show does and how it does run out of ideas and kind of tries to just snap back to the status quo of uh, that it was began with when in fact all these new developments are happening but it doesn't really reckon with that in some cases which frustrated me when i was watching season two but i do think at least in the final episode there is a um a promise of change so i found that to be encouraging yeah and season three it looks like it's going to be leaning more into thriller aspects which feel necessary at this point because the characters have been reacting for so long that i'm ready for them to become proactive Okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. Uh, I'll be quick here. I, I finally tried uh, Fat Burger offers a protein-style option where it's basically they put the burger and the toppings and everything on a bed of uh, shredded lettuce, and I really enjoyed it, and I recommend it if you're trying to cut down the carbs. Um, I've been getting kind of growing tired of protein-style burgers where you're like eating it inside a lettuce wrap. Um, but I actually much prefer it in this kind of like um, salad style, which uh, it's cool because Fat Burger offers, uh, you know, f- fried eggs and bacon and guacamole and all that kind of stuff. So um, recommend Fat Burger's protein style. Uh, Jacob, I, I know you didn't put anything on the dock here, but you've been having some good progress on the diet. And I, I, I'm going to force you to talk about it here. Yeah, um, I wasn't going to talk about this, but Peter is making me. Um, I've, things have been going very, very well on the diet. Uh, I've hit a number that I haven't been under since 2012, 2013. Um, I am down eight inches in the waist, five holes in my belt, and I'm not planning to stop anytime soon. So that's my current status on cutting down on uh, bad crap. Yeah. Yay. Very proud of you, Jacob. Uh, are you feeling better? Yeah, I feel great. I uh, um. At least physically, I feel great. I've never felt this good in my adult life, probably. So this is the first time I've. This is the longest I've been on a diet while exercising, and it's. It, and you know what? It, uh, people always say eat right and exercise, and I'm actually doing it, and it works. So here I am. 
<laughs> I'm actually in fear because I, I've reached the point that if I lose a couple more pounds, I'll be the lightest I've been in over 10 years. But over the next, the course of the next month, I have plans of going to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, I think like five or six times. <laughs> so uh, th- that is probably going to be cheat days, and I- I'm hoping I can somehow not gain too much. I know that what I started doing is I started, I started having a cheat day every few weeks. And um, I've especially I, I've noticed that um, it tends to really kickstart my body in a, in a way that not having one has been it's been, it's been helpful. Actually, it's been kind of resetting my body's internal balance in a way where like if I stagnate slightly, I, you know, cheat one day and then my next way in or my next, you know, shirt check, or my next belt check. I've actually seen a bump in progress. So I think maybe you, you can work it into your schedule in a way that can maybe benefit you. Yeah, that, that's actually a thing that they call carving up. That's actually a thing. Uh, apparently, it helps you break through a plateau and and lose more weight. So m- maybe it will. Maybe I won't indulge as much as I anticipate I will. Um, but speaking of indulging, Brad, what have you been eating this week? Yeah, Jacob, I'm really proud of you, uh, but I've been eating garbage. <laughs> 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 no, uh, I mean it's like uh, I, it should be said. Like I do try these things, but it's not like I'm like. <laughs> wolving down like crazy huge full bags of snacks or something all the time like a lot of the stuff i'll try and i'm like oh okay and then like i'll have it every now and then but like, it's not like i sit down and eat like a whole bag of chips and like man these chips are amazing um but no i saw so i did uh i found a new flavor of combos um which walgreens has apparently exclusively it's 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 still every now it's kind of strange to me that they've they do this thing where like certain stores get certain flavors and it makes me wonder how they determine like what store gets like an exclusive uh flavor but it's it's cheddar cheese bacon uh with the the pretzel um surrounding the the filling uh and so uh, i usually like my favorite combo is the pretzel one with the regular cheddar cheese um and i also like the pepperoni pizza one uh but this one is probably my new favorite combo now it's just it's uh it's really good the the cheddar cheese bacon flavors uh great it goes perfectly with the the pretzel uh surrounding it and yeah it's just if you like combos it's a good one try and find it at walgreens and then uh swedish fish came out with a um a new i guess flavor if you will or really just more of a a variety it's called swedish fish tails and kind of taking it seems like the latest trend in like gummy candies is to have two flavors in one because these are basically like the starburst duos version of swedish fish where the head is a different flavor and the tail is a different flavor. So it's just two flavors in one. Uh, and do you there... think this is just a trend or do you think like there was some new advancement in gummy technology where they were able to like put two, you know, flavors together and they're like, oh, we're going to take advantage of that in all our line of candies? Uh, I mean, maybe maybe that is it because I, I guess now that I think about it, I don't think that until recently there were any gummies that had two different flavors in one. Like I know that there were gummies that had like different colors but the flavors weren't different because of it so you you might be right i'd have to think about that and like think about other gummy candies so maybe maybe that is it um but yeah so the the swedish fish tails it has uh blue raspberry and strawberry watermelon pineapple which is my favorite one uh and raspberry mango so so yeah those are those are out and they're pretty good and then uh i'm bringing this up just because this is my favorite oreo by far uh, s'mores Oreos are back in stores because it's almost summer, and this, this I had them again. And seriously, these are the best Oreos that they've they've ever made. I think that I even like them more than regular Oreos. 
they're just perfect. It's the it's the graham cookie with uh, chocolate and like marshmallow filling combined in the middle, and it's just they're great. They're great. Very cool. Okay, let's move on to what we've been playing. I'll go first, and I'll be really quick. I played over the weekend Big Trouble in Little China. There is a uh, miniature board game, which the 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 miniatures look incredible. The art looks incredible. It has a two sided board. Uh, I playing this game. I didn't realize how racist this movie probably is. Um, but uh, and the game is not great, to be honest with you. Um, it uh, it's probably. You know, one of the more thematic games based on a movie, and the more thematic you go, the more rules you got to learn. And there's probably just way too many rules for a game that's mostly about rolling dice and moving and fighting people. And um, there's missions that are kind of cool. You read from a mission book and you kind of uh, complete these quests that are kind of like things that were in the movie or, you know, based on the movie. But uh, only one or two people can do that at a time. So if you're not one of those two people, you're not doing the cool thing. You're doing you're left doing the not so cool thing. So Big Trouble in Little China is kind of a dud for me. And I think I mentioned this on the podcast uh, at one point, but I played Vader Immortal Chapter One. This is um, the ILM X Lab, um, basically working with the Star Wars Story Group and writer producer David Goyer, um, produ- producing this whole story. It's called Vader Immortal. The first chapter is coming out for the Oculus devices. I got to try it at Facebook headquarters in Los Angeles uh, with the Oculus Quest, which is this new. Um, VR headset that has no wires, has no connections. It's basically an all-in-one device. I think it sells for like three ninety nine. It's actually the first time trying this device that was like in playing this. Uh, I want to say as a game, it's a storytelling experience. After playing this storytelling experience, I was actually like, maybe I could actually, maybe I should consider buying a VR, this VR headset because, you know, I don't want a PC. I don't want to spend money on a huge PC or a PlayStation rig and all that stuff. But this thing, you could get the VR experience for, you know, just a few hundred dollars, which I know just a few hundred is is still a lot of money. But, um, okay, but onto this. The thing that impressed me about this, and I tried the whole first chapter, which I think was like 45-minute uh, storytelling experience, and it takes you into Vader's lair on his uh, on on the, his planet with the uh, Mustafar with the castle, and you're recruited by him, and you get to see this intimate side of Vader. And what appeals to me here is this doesn't feel like the comic books where it's, or like a book where it's telling the side mission that doesn't connect to the stories and characters we know and love. This seems like it's going to be. Uh, impacting Star Wars canon, if not, you know, only impacting, you know, the past of this galaxy far, far away. And uh, it, very, it interested me. I want to see more of this story. Brad, I know you tried this out at Star Wars Celebration. Uh, what did you think? Yeah, no, I really liked it, too. It's um, the it's very cool. Like, if anything, I, I felt the same thing about the this Oculus headset because it's just it's, it allows you to roam freely without being hooked up to anything and it made me feel like uh i wanted to try more uh vr games and experiences like that just because it was it was so satisfying especially uh wielding a lightsaber and how reactive it is to your motion and uh it really does immerse you um in in star wars as best as a vr experience can um it's just i i i also kind of got that feeling that this was something that might have like 
a larger impact or like it might reveal things that will be important either later on in like uh you know star wars shows or movies or something like that maybe not like absolutely you know integral to the story since they can't guarantee that everyone will experience this but i feel like it'll have something rewarding in it for fans who are able to partake in in this experience yeah, I think you're right. And uh, when I was over at my friend Dan's house, he had me try this game called Beat Saber with his VR headset, which is hooked up to a computer. Um, and th- that game is basically you have two lightsabers and one lightsaber in each one of your hands. And there's these blocks coming at you and it's set to music. And it's kind of like, I guess, any of those music games where you're trying to like hit the certain beats. But it's like a workout. And I was thinking... Uh, how that like a game like that might be an interesting way of working out while you know playing game and it be like a fun experience jacob have you experienced beat saber i've seen the video demos of it but i haven't actually played it yet i don't own a vr headset yet yeah you're moving all over with it i feel like it could be a fun way to you know burn some galleries but um... if you if you haven't yet uh go on youtube and look up like uh custom beat saber videos there are some insane videos out there of people doing stuff like i don't know how they're they're hitting the beats and saying like like there are people who are nuts at that game all i do when i'm doing it all i can imagine is what it looks like from the like in the world you feel so badass and you're hit like like you're like in this like tron like world with these like lightsabers and it like feels like you're like awesome but i i just picture myself like you know the third person view of me just like being this dork with this headset, like moving, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, ben, what have you been playing? I finally finished Red Dead Redemption 2, and this is a game that we've talked about a lot uh, over the course of the podcast. As soon as it came out, we talked about it. Um, I don't really have much to add other than it's a really satisfying game. I mean, it, I, I've been playing it like sort of off and on ever since we talked about it last, and that was a long time ago, and it's taken a long time to beat it, which is satisfying when you pay you know 60 bucks for a game or whatever to actually have it be worth your money and i feel like this game definitely is um i think there is a so the the main story sort of um splits and in an interesting way in this game and i don't want to give too much away for people who may still be playing it but there's like an epilogue in the game that is uh way more in-depth than I thought it was going to be. So um, I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of the gameplay mechanics and all that stuff, we've already gone over all of that. But I, I, overall, I found it to be a satisfying experience. Very cool. That brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find links to all the features we mentioned, including uh, Jacob's reviews, Jacob's, uh, I mean, uh, Chris's reviews, Jacob's VP piece, uh, HT's uh, film cast bonus episode, and my new YouTube channel in the show notes. Uh, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. Jacob, I don't think we have time today. No, it's, then, then cut something else. Cut everything else because it's time to read from Lewis A. Safian's <laughs> gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery. Okay, go ahead. What, what what chapter are we looking at today? We're looking at the screwballs chapter. 
Are you ready for this, Peter? Not really, but... <laughs> You're so crazy about baseball, you never dream about girls. You're afraid you'll lose your turn at bat. Huh. <laughs> then... He keeps hitting home runs in his head. He has bats in his belfry. Belfry. <laughs> how you say that? <laughs> Brad. No um, wonder that guy flies off the handle. He has the screw loose. <laughs> oh, because Chris. the screw is loose. I get it. Chris, uh, one way he's fortunate, he could go completely out of his mind and no one will know the difference. That's true. <laughs> Uh, who have I not gotten yet? I'm sorry. HT. Hey. All right. Um, her, uh, HT's case is one that's enriching medical and psychiatric science. She's already paid two brain specialists and four psychiatrists more than $5,000 each. Uh, that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. What? That's an oddly specific <laughs> disc, too. Yeah, I don't... Like... Who is this supposed to be funny for? For Jacob. Screwball. 